this was the point where I went from deep, dark place to like really scary thoughts that I couldn't control and that weren't me, which was really scary because it was very compelling. Welcome to Are You Mental, a podcast about mental health. My name is McAndrews, and today we're talking all about the path through depression. Now, if you follow the show already, you'll know that I have already made an episode on depression. I spoke to two people who have experienced depression, and Nettie, our psychologist, about what goes on behind the scenes. So, by all means, go back and have a listen to that. But this time, I'm doing something a little bit different. I'm making a three-episode mini-series where I talk to three people who have experienced depression and, for the most part, have come out the other side. We talk about what their depression was like, but more importantly, we focus on what helped them get through, down to the brass tacks of tools, habits, and inner work that helped lift their depression. This was actually going to be a single episode originally, but each of the three people I interviewed was so good that it really felt right to me to give them an episode each. So no matter who you are or where you're at, I think you're going to get a lot out of these episodes. But my greatest hope is that they are listened to by people who are currently in a difficult and maybe even dark place with depression, to impart strategies and tools to help shift the depression, and most importantly, to give hope. So if that's you, I really encourage you to keep listening. And if you know someone currently experiencing depression, I invite you to do that courageous thing and share this episode with them. And can I just stress that this little series is just three people's experiences. And even though they are really useful to hear, there are so many more out there. And you'll notice, even between these three, that different people gravitate to different tools and strategies. For example, Ryan loves a bit of journaling, whereas it does nothing at all for Neva. Just to cover off some housekeeping, we are needing some funds to make the next episode of Are You Mental? So if you want to help out with that, go to our sparkly new website at areyoumental.com and click on the donate button. And if you want to get hold of me for any reason, you can email mick, that's M-I-C-K, at areyoumental.com. So in this first episode of the series, I talk to Laura. You sit comfortably, I can move that guy. Yeah, I need to sit a bit on the side, sorry. As you can probably tell, Laura is American, although she's also a New Zealander. She was born here and left here when she was six years old. Then, when she was on holiday here in 2018, she met my friend and housemate at the time, Steve. Long story short, Laura moved to New Zealand, her and Steve got married, and now they have a two-year-old daughter called Rosie. I didn't actually know the extent of Laura's journey with depression until I had this conversation with her. And in editing this episode, I've been really impressed by just how eloquent and insightful Laura is and how much strength and resilience she's developed through it all. So I think you're going to get a lot out of this one. And just as a heads up, Laura does touch on the topic of suicidal thoughts later on in this episode. So if you think that's not going to be helpful for you or anyone else with an earshot, then by all means skip this one. So let's go back to the studio where I've sat her down in front of the microphone. One, two, three, four, five. Four, that was the Kiwiest number you did. I know, yeah, four. 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 Four, four. yeah. <laughs> For some reason, my way of trying to get someone to feel comfortable before an interview is to overshare and make a slight fool of myself. I talk to Siri in American accent. Hey Siri, set a reminder for 4 p.m. Yeah. <laughs> With all the awkward banter out of my system, I asked Laura to cast her mind back to the first time she experienced depression and what it was like. The first experience that I would have had was when I was about 21. 
And at the time, wouldn't have been able to classify what was going on for me, but I was undergoing a big life shift and change. And at that time, I was shifting from being in undergrad classes into graduate school. I had large shifts in friends. I had a large shift in a romantic relationship. And the way I would describe feeling was just constantly underwater. Mm. And this is coming from someone who would typically describe myself as relatively organized or high-functioning, like really enjoy interacting with people. And this was one of the first times in my life where I really wasn't able to engage with anything. I would go to my classes and I would sit in them and I would weep. Mm. And I would go home to my flat where I was with, I believe there were four of us in the flat at the time, And I would just go home and I would just be alone and by myself. And this was still at a time, you know, I mean, age 2021, you're doing social things, right? Everybody's out all the time. Um, I was involved in organizations. I was doing all sorts. And all of that just fell away. And my parents only lived about an hour and a half away. And I find myself daily, I would finish up my last class and I would drive home and spend the night there. And then the next day I would drive back again, mm. even though I had this place to live in my university campus. And I think what I was really seeking was a safe place mm. because for some reason where I was felt really unstable. So that feeling of being underwater and not being able to cope was really foreign for me. And I didn't know how to get myself out. Mm. And I'm really thankful to my parents who just kind of like walked with me through the season. They pushed me, but not too hard, Mm. which I look back and I really appreciate. And that honestly continued until I sort of like finished that whole life transition. I think it took about a year Mm. and was able to bring myself back to what I would normally have called reality. Mm. When you say underwater, can you describe that a bit more? What, What do you mean? I mean, underwater, drowning, they're sort of like these synonyms that I would use. But it was the inability to process and cope with everything that was happening around me. And so maybe some of that was like sensory overload or needing to be alone and quiet and really just not engage. Like it was really hard for me to step outside of my inner self to even participate in external life in the world. But then I was also removing myself from that situation. And Mm. that was what almost felt alarming to me was that almost not by choice, I was disengaging from society. And it wasn't me that was doing it, but there was something in my brain and how it was working at the time that just didn't let me be out there in the world and connecting with people in the way that I normally would have or connecting with anything that I enjoyed, connecting with the learning that I was supposed to be doing at the time, all of that just sort of fell to the wayside. Mm. What was it like knowing full well what you are usually like and what you're usually capable of and what Mm. you usually enjoy and how you usually behave and then witnessing yourself be this depleted, weaker version of yourself? As an achiever by nature, Mm. it certainly felt like a sense of failure because I wasn't able to live up to 
standards, whether that was standards I set for myself, ones that implicitly I knew were there from my family. And I wasn't even able to meet the minimum standard for what someone would have been asking from me. And so I think it did lead me to feel a deep sense of failure. And I'm really thankful to those who sort of stuck by me through that time to help me regain that sense of self again. Mm. And so you said that obviously having your parents and their home to go back to was really helpful. Mm -hmm. Was there anything else other than just having that safe space of, of your parents' home that helped you through that period of depression? Probably around the six-month mark was when I was able to engage with the idea of what can I do to help myself or what can other people help me do. And So previous to the six-month mark, you were just kind of drowning, mm -hmm. right, and, and unable to exercise that agency yet. Correct, yeah. And so I changed my living situation. Mm. I really focused on a tight knit group of friends who I knew were really supportive. And that really helped me. I had had a hugely wide social circle before then. I was the social butterfly. I was going to everything. I would say yes to everything. And instead, I really allowed myself to focus in on a small group of people who I could invest my time into. So I think in limiting the circle, instead of casting such a wide net, I was able to rebuild in a way that felt much more purposeful. Mm. And then instead of feeling that sense of failure, could almost start to feel those ticks of myself coming back to life again. Those what of yourself? The, just the ticks, little glimmers of hope that built on each other one by one that then gave me the ability to see that there was something else beyond this time, that mm. it could be... A temporary time because I think when you're in the depths it feels like it will be this way forever there's no way out and get, getting those little glimmers of hope as I went was hugely helpful mm, cool after finishing university Laura moved to Houston Texas and started her young professional life and met my uh, first husband mm -hmm. <laughs> and um, we were sort of enjoying married life and about three years into that was when the next period of depression popped up for me. Hmm. Popped always, up. Oh, yeah, gosh. popped up Hello. or slipped down. <laughs> yeah, I don't know yeah, yeah. <laughs> the best way to describe yeah. it. And once I realized that that relationship was ending, that sort of entered the next huge shift in my life. And again, mm. your stability is gone and it felt absolutely hopeless to think about living in the world and not being part of a family unit when I had sort of built that for myself. And I remember going to the supermarket and I would scan people's hands to see who had a ring and who didn't because I was about to not have one mm. and was thinking, who's going to notice? Because in the culture, there, where I was in Texas and in the States, it's really common for people to be married, let's say, straight out of uni, or by the time you're 25 or 26, it's, you know, sort of an earlier culture than here in New Zealand. Mm. And not only did it feel like a failure, but it felt like I was being removed from that typical societal norm of being married, taking the next steps, having a family, all of the things that you were supposed to do mm. at that point in your life. And so this experience with depression felt different than the first time where I described it as feeling underwater and drowning and not being able to cope. In this 
period, I actually felt like I had some agency. And I think that was because I was a bit more grown up and I had some tools to know how to advocate for myself. And I had a good group of people. I had really strong interests that were just mine and that I felt like I could engage in and have some independence with. So it felt different. It still felt hopeless. I cried every day for Mm -hmm. months. (laughs) And my best friend and my parents at the time would just sit on the phone with me or in person with me and were so gracious. And they were all going through their own periods of life, you Mm. know, but to have people who are willing to walk with me was amazing. Mm. So this period of time was the first opportunity that I thought, I'm going to pursue talking to a doctor. And I remember going to the doctor and they give you a form to fill out. And I completed it, and she said, I think that this is something that we should pursue looking at if you're willing to um, consider medication. And I asked her to tell me a little bit about what I could expect from taking it because I was on the fence as to whether or not I wanted to pursue that line of help. And the description that she gave has actually always stuck with me, which was that right now you're operating in the dark and you keep running into something and you don't know what it is and you can't figure it out, but you run into it and you walk away and you run into it again and again and again. And she said, what this is going to help you do is turn the lights on and you're going to run into something and go, oh, that was a table. Next time I'm going to walk around the table or a chair or whatever the piece of furniture was. And that description really came true for me. And within a few weeks of taking the medication, I could really understand what she was talking about. I had a thought that typically, I was sort of like laying in bed, trying to go to sleep, had a thought that would typically get my heart absolutely racing and knowing that I wouldn't be able to go to sleep for another hour until I'd sort of come down from this anxiety. Mm. And I was able to really logically approach the thought and think, okay, that was a thought that I had. It's not necessarily true and was able to sort of like move past it. And so that I just really remember that specific point in time where what she had described to me came true. Mm. And I was really thankful for that. So you just got a little bit of traction. Yes. That you weren't getting before in a way. Mm -hmm. Wow. That's true. And being able to re-engage the logical side of my brain Mm. was what I found to be the most helpful because it was like my emotional sense had overtaken everything and even though I knew that certain things weren't true or weren't real I just I couldn't stop and this gave me the ability to put up those little boundaries for myself and those little barriers to really create my own little fence of safety or my own little fence of security for myself. Mm. Hi it's Mick here I hope you're enjoying Are You Mental? As you can imagine, making this podcast is a pretty time-consuming pursuit, and I often get asked how people can support the podcast. So what you can do is go to GoFundMe.com and search the words, Are You Mental? That's GoFundMe.com and search, Are You Mental? Okay, on with the episode. You mentioned before, in passing, that you you might be lying there at night and you'd have a thought and it would spark anxiety that would stop you sleeping Mm -hmm. and it made me wonder obviously the depression had an anxiety element to it for you as well what was the relationship between depression and anxiety for you definitely I have been diagnosed with 
general anxiety. Um, and I would say that ever since I was a kid, that's been a constant, I call it a hum. It's sort of like a hum in my chest. And I think that when I've experienced these periods of depression, it's like the depression takes you so low, but it also spikes the anxiety so high mm. at the same time. So if I think about a line graph, it's like those two things, instead of sort of being even together, one dips way low and one goes sky high. Mm. And the depression periods took away that rational ability to be able to control the anxiety. I have a lot of tools in my toolbox now that I use to help manage my anxiety beyond medication. And when I was in those periods of depression, wasn't able to sort of engage or use those tools because I was just in such a black hole and just wanting to sleep because sleep was escape, you know? And if you're sleeping for 16 hours a day, then you're obviously not doing the things that you need to do to manage anxiety or engage in the world. So that's a good question about the relationship between the two. That's how I would describe it. Mm-hmm. And how would you describe the experience or feeling of depression? I know it can be hard to wrap words around it, but how would you start to do that? I think the general description would be a deep, dark place of overwhelm for me. And so not feeling like I'm operating at the surface, but I'm operating way below in a place where it doesn't feel like there's much light and I'm not sure how to climb my way back out. And I've never equated it to anything physical like a well or a tunnel or Mm. anything, but if I had to, those are sort of the words that Mm. I would use to describe. And I think in feeling the lack of light or the lack of escape, the tendency is to then hibernate. Because if you can just triage the things that you have to do, then that gets those things off your plate. And then the rest of your time is just to be in that space. And if you don't know how to get out, then that's where you are. Mm. Is there anything functional or adaptive or even helpful about the hibernation? Is the hibernation in some way necessary or is it unhealthy? Good question. I I think there are very specific times in life for rest and recovery. Mm. I often think about how you might read in a book about Victorian times oh, yeah. and people would go to convalesce by the sea. Oh yes. And that it's like people like would get something I'd read in like a novel. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And like we don't do that anymore in today's society. We don't get overwhelmed and we think, you know what, I'm just gonna wrap up in a blanket and go sit by the English seaside for three months and rest and recover. And so perhaps in some ways this is our bodies saying it's time to do that. Mm. And because each of my periods of depression have come with really big life shifts and my loss of ability to cope and see my way beyond those, mm. you're right, that could be your body saying it's time to just Stop. give up for a while. Mm. I think the tricky thing is that where it becomes unhealthy is that feeling of non-escape because that can lead to much darker thoughts. Non-escape. Non-escape. When there's no other option other than being in this deep, dark Mm. place, that's where things can get really dangerous. And I can talk a little bit about my experience with that, but 
making sure that I didn't get so deep that things like suicide were on the table was mm. really important to me. And that's why using the tools that I had to manage it as best I could at the time to eventually then climb out mm. um, was the strategy that I used. So there's a difference between necessary rest and getting engulfed by the darkness. Yeah, I'd agree with that description. And and being in danger of not climbing your way back out. Mm-hmm. And then I think there's the third layer, which is feeling like there's there's no end other than to end it yourself. Mm. Is probably the yeah the deeper darker layer mm. of and, depression. And uh, prefacing this with it's obviously completely optional to answer or not answer, but is that something you have experienced? I have, yeah. That was in my most recent period of depression, mm-hmm. which was another big life shift, which is my theme. So I had my beautiful baby girl. She's now two, but in July of 2021. And when she was six weeks old, we went into lockdown. Mm-hmm. And we were locked in our house with a newborn from August to December, mm-hmm. I believe it was, when we finally sort of came out of that. And just for everyone else, we is you and your current husband, Steve, yes, my yes, friend, who I lived with. <laughs> my absolutely adoring and lovely husband, Steve, who used to be flatmates We'll call him the better him. husband. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Not that I met the first one, but, yeah, you know. Definitely. I'm a fan of Steve, so, you know. I am too, yeah. <laughs> so, yes, thank you for clarifying that. <laughs> um, so, yeah, in our house, it was just the three of us. It was me, Steve, and little baby Rosie. Mm. And for those unfamiliar with the New Zealand lockdowns, we couldn't leave. They were hardcore. They were hardcore. You couldn't <laughs> leave. Your, yeah, you couldn't leave your house except to go to the supermarket or to take a walk. Those were your options, and nothing else. You couldn't go get a coffee. You couldn't order a takeaway meal. There was nothing. And in this case, I approached maternal mental health, or actually, I think my GP did it for me because I just sobbed my way through my three-month um, postpartum appointment at the doctor and she was very kind and referred me to maternal mental health here in New Zealand who were actually fabulous and the turnaround time was incredible I think the next day I was on the phone with a psychiatrist who was asking me all sorts of questions and so just to clarify I was on medication um, in the previous depressive episode that I mentioned and then had weaned off of that. So at the time that I gave birth, I wasn't on any medication and quickly found myself in a really bad place. And so maternal mental health was able to prescribe me with the medication. And this was the first time that that hadn't been enough. And I think that one of the reasons for that was that in this lockdown, we had lost all of our coping mechanisms that any of us might use to engage in the world, right? So like anything that I knew in my toolbox to help combat depression, help combat anxiety were gone. So the top of my list, number one is exercise. I'm a hugely kinetic processor. And if I can't like release that adrenaline and release that anxiety feeling, then I am just pent up for ages. And To be fair, you could exercise while you were in a lockdown, but I had pretty severe birth injuries 
And so that was more of like a personal effect rather than the lockdown. But I lost the ability to exercise. I lost the ability to engage with other humans other than on Zoom, which I know we live in a Zoom culture now, but man, that was tough. It is not the Mm. same. I lost the ability for any kind of joy, like having a coffee in the morning from the takeaway shop and lost the ability to really engage with family at a time where I needed them the most. Steve's family is down in Bay of Plenty. We're up here in Auckland. And we applied for discompensation for Steve's mum to be able to come and help. And we had letters from maternal mental health, GP and everyone. And she got denied. Mm. And to, to visit you. To come up to help us. Mm. Yeah. But the answer was no. Oh, yeah. And because the medication wasn't able to sort of draw me out enough, and I had lost all of those other tools, this was the point where I went from deep, dark place to like really scary thoughts and really intrusive thoughts that I couldn't control and that weren't me. Mm. And I remember describing it to Steve as... It felt like the devil was crawling up my back and into my brain Hmm. and telling me to end it, which was really scary Hmm. because it was very compelling. And it was compelling to think about getting in the car and just driving away and not coming back. And he was so supportive, and I'm so thankful for that. And I'm really thankful because one of the things that maternal mental health really focuses on are intrusive thoughts about your baby or hurting your baby. And I'm so thankful that none of that was part of my journey. It was only focused on me. And the psychiatrist was very helpful in talking me through what these feelings felt like and different strategies that we could use to try and combat them. But that was certainly the point where there was no escape. And... It was just daily, hourly, Mm -hmm. you know, just combating these thoughts that just wouldn't go away. Mm. Yeah. Just the fact that they're completely out of your control, that just just me entertaining the idea of being in that position scares me. Just, Mm. Just imagining it scares me. So I can't imagine how petrifying it would have been to be the person experiencing that. And I think that's why now, like when I read stories about individuals who succumb to suicide, it's almost like I I have this sense of understanding because there is no control. And it was it wasn't me. <laughs> that's the only way I can describe it. And it has to be chemical imbalances and hormones and like things within your body, but the compelling nature of those thoughts. It took every piece of my energy to not just say, okay, let's just do that. So how did you get through that? Yeah, that took a while. (laughs) There was probably, I'd say, a period of two to three months where I was really engaging in this, like, really deep and dark place. And I upped my medication slightly which I think was one piece that helped that chemical rebalance. Mm. I think that as the lockdowns lessened and I was able to bring back some of those tools that I was talking about, just really tiny engagements with people, whether it was meeting up at the park with other mums who 
had kids the same age, you know, from a coffee group or a antenatal group. So like having those touch points with people again, being able to enjoy just some of the small little tiny pieces of life and feeling some of that stress. Also as Rosie got a bit older and, you know, at that point she was four or five, six months old, you're sleeping a little bit more. Mm. And that was another huge tool that I had lost, right? I had gone from previous bouts of depression where I was able to hibernate was what I had described that was lost. Mm. There was no sleeping. Mm. And even if she was asleep, often because that depression was so low, the anxiety was so high, even if she was asleep, I wasn't asleep. I was just anticipating the next wake up or worrying about something. And so I think as those layers of tools started to come back again, and then it wasn't until she was about a year old that I was really able to start climbing out hmm. and so that's almost a year of it absolutely yeah wow a year and when she was a year old I decided I was going to wean off medication I had this as a goal in my mind I don't know where it stemmed from but I'm a person who's not great at asking for help hmm. and so feeling like I had to layer on help to my life felt like I was using a crutch And so I felt this sense of responsibility to myself to wean off the medication. In past situations, I had only been on that temporarily and then had sort of finished. And after about six months, I realized that at least this wasn't going to be a short-term experience with medication or relationship with medication at this time, but it was going to be a bit more of a medium term until I had really found my feet. And so I'm really glad that I was able to re-engage with my doctor again and say, I'm not coping here and I need some help. And we talked about lots of different options. I've also been working with a counselor. Now that she's a year old and my body has healed a bit more, I've been able to get back into exercise Mm. and I'm building myself back up again to a place where I do feel full of light and joy and I'm able to enjoy Rosie and enjoy life Mm. and feel that sense of independence again with things that I like to do. Great. If you were to summarize the tools, the habits, whatever it is that for you helps shift depression, Mm -hmm. how would you do that? I would say a threefold approach. One is people, making sure that I have people that I feel really safe and supported by, and in turn, I can support as well. So generating, building, maintaining relationships that feel like a two-way street and feeling like you have a safe space with those people. The second one is, for me, it's that kinetic processing of exercise, walking, being outside. I'm not one who can engage in yoga or meditation and feel like I've had the release that I need to feel a sense of calm and peace. I really need my body to be busy in order to do that. And so while I've tried those methods in the past, I found that like really strong and active movement is what I need. And then the third thing for me has been engaging with professionals who either provide counseling or can provide medication to help me at times that I need it or both. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's really important to be responsible to yourself in how you approach that. It can feel like it's an easy fix, but I think it needs to be approached in the right way. And with the right intentions. It being medication? Yeah, yeah. 
in order to ensure that you still feel like you have the agency over your thoughts, your feelings, and so on. I'd had an experience with medication, one in particular, where I would just describe myself as being totally numbed out and I had no buzz left. And I'm a get up and go kind of person, but I just would sit on the couch because I had no mojo. No mojo. <laughs> <laughs> and while it felt great from an anxiety perspective, because I wasn't worried about a thing, <laughs> but you know what? I also wasn't worried about a thing. Mm. I wasn't worried about doing my supermarket shopping, and I wasn't worried about doing some of the basic things I need to do. And so for me, I do need to have a bit of a buzz to do life, totally. right? Like to get up off the couch and go and do something. And so that's why I think approaching medication with a responsible mindset of knowing that you still have the agency to feel like yourself while you're having the support is important. Right, yep. And what about therapy? How's that helped? Mm. Counseling has been an interesting experience for me because I've tried to engage with it multiple times as an adult, but I had never found the right fit. Mm. And I am so lucky that right now I finally feel like I've so I have someone in my corner and she's nothing like what I would have described. I would have said I want someone who's probably a bit like me, like action-oriented and can give me advice and we work through things and we have an action plan at the end of it and I have some homework and like I can tick the box and feel like I've achieved something. And instead, I was paired with someone who is incredibly maternal and so I finally feeling like I have the right match there has been really empowering. And what about specifically to do with depression? Mm -hmm. Like how has therapy helped shift depression for you? I think that having a dedicated space to talk to someone who is knowledgeable about depression can feel like a real activator. And friends and family are amazing supports, but having someone who can help push the dialogue to sort of a higher level was what I found helpful at the time. It's also about creating that, whether it's an hour a week or whatever time it is, that's actually for you. When you're in the depths of depression, you don't feel like much is for you because you've sort of lost all sense of that. Mm. And so doing that for yourself, I think, can just sort of like add on to those glimmers of hope that you can focus on yourself and come through. Mm, totally. Obviously, no one chooses depression and no one wants it and no one's happy they've had it or experienced it. But is there anything it's given you? Are you grateful for any aspect of having gone through that? You're right. I wouldn't wish it upon anyone. <laughs> but I would say that building myself a set of tools has helped in more aspects of life than even just depression. I mean, being able to increase my rebound time if something goes wrong, I feel like I can really quickly recover and generate a positive view on something. So I have really bolstered my adult toolbox of sort of surviving life because life brings you all sorts of challenges all the time. And not all of them lead to bouts of depression or feelings of anxiety, but just being able to navigate all of the trials and tribulations. So I am grateful for the learning experiences that I've had. I wouldn't wish that I had experienced multiple bouts of depression in my adult life, but each one has certainly taught me a little bit more. And as I look ahead, I know how to pre-manage 
some of those things. So I described postnatally with Rosie. If we were to have another child, there's a lot that I would do beforehand to try and set myself up for success rather than falling back into that same hole again, especially as deep as I did. If someone's listening to this and right now they're in a really dark place with depression like you were, what would you want to say to them? I'd want to say two things, which is first, because you probably feel alone in what you're doing, use some of your energy for rest and recovery because that's probably what your body and your brain are telling you that you need. But balance that with reaching out for people and things that can help you. And you might have some idea of what those are, and you might have no idea what those could be. But engaging with someone who can start to unearth them for you will be hugely helpful and give you that sense of glimmer of hope that this might not be forever and that there are people and things out there very willing to help you feel like yourself again and feel like the world is a place that you can enjoy and engage in. What might be a starting point, do you think? I think it depends on your level of comfort, but I think counselling is a great place to start. It feels like the gateway into a world of help in a way that doesn't feel intimidating. Being able to talk through things with someone who was objective and on my side really gave me the perspective of the next steps that I could take. Life can shift. It can shift rapidly or it can shift slowly. And if you're willing to bend and adjust, you can begin to layer on the glimmers of hope that will help you climb out. That's always been my experience, that if I could just grab onto one thing that felt tangible, it was like using a rope to pull yourself out. If I could just get one handhold, then maybe I could get another, and I could get another. And just finding the place to start will give you that first handhold. And what can lie on the other side of all that? Very simply, I would say you. Who you are as a person, like at least for me, when I was in periods of depression, I knew that it wasn't me. It wasn't how I was meant to function. I wasn't brought here for that purpose. And I was desperate in some way to find me again. And I feel like with every handhold that I've taken on that piece of rope, I've found more and more of me. And sometimes it's a new me and it's a different me, but it's me emerging and being able to live and find that positivity and find that joy. I'd like to say a huge thank you to Laura for being so open with her story. As I said at the start, I've been hugely impressed with her ability to put some really tough and complex things into words. If this episode has brought anything up for you and you'd like to talk to someone, no matter where you are in the world, you can go to checkpointorg.com global for a list of local helplines. 
And if you're in Aotearoa, New Zealand, you can call 1737 at any time of the day or night. As I've said, we're looking for the funds to make the next episode. At time of recording, we're halfway there, so we'd love you to help with that. You can go to our website, areyoumental.com, and click on Donate. A big thank you to the Love It Media team for all their work and support, and a special shout-out to Josh for the slick new website. If you want to follow us on Instagram, we are at areyoumentalpodcast, and just like every other podcast you listen to, we'd love you to quickly give us a five-star rating, and if you're an absolute champ, a review as well. Preferably a positive one. I'll see you back here soon for another episode, and until then, have a mental week.